Tonight, I have something special on my mind and heart to share with you. What I'd like to do, if I may, is just to go over basically the biblical teaching regarding demons and how they affect individuals, both saved and unsaved. So we want to look at the Word of God, find out exactly what the Scripture has to say about it as best we can ascertain it, and then trust the Holy Spirit to apply these principles. Now let's begin at the beginning in terms of the whole concept of demons or evil spirits. Point number one, the identity of demons. If you want to keep an outline, this is going to come out a lot like a lecture and not so much like a sermon because I want you to get the facts, you know. All right, number one, the identity of demons. And we'll talk first of all about Satan. As we know, sin itself began in heaven with Lucifer, the son of the morning. He was the highest and the most exalted of heaven's created beings. And when he sinned against God, he became Satan. He was not created as Satan, he became Satan. Now in Isaiah chapter 14, we get a little bit of insight into this. Isaiah 14:12 describes the fall of Satan. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground who didst weaken the nations? And here you realize, of course, that he's speaking also to the king of Babylon. And at the same time he's speaking to the king of Babylon, the prophet is speaking behind the king of Babylon to the power that is back of him, Satan. We've talked about this many times, how that Satan can be behind an individual. He was even behind Peter. Now keep that one in mind for future reference. Satan actually spoke words through the mouth of the apostle Peter. Satan was behind also the king of Babylon and what he was doing here. And so he speaks both to him, the king of Babylon, and to Satan behind him. Verse 13 continues, and Satan is in view. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And stars could well be a reference to other angels. I will sit also... Upon the mound of the congregation, the sides of the north, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here's the key thing that caused Satan's fall or Lucifer's fall. I will be like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 14. That was pride at its apex. And the next verse, 15, says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. You see, what caused Satan's fall was pride. He desired to be equal with God. Now we read something else about the fall indicated to us and also about Satan's personality prior to the fall when he was Lucifer in Ezekiel 28:11. And here again the prophet is speaking to the king of Tyre this time, only at the same time he's also talking past the king of Tyre to Satan who is behind him as well. He says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, that's Ezekiel's title very frequently, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now that's the first description of the power behind the king of Tyre. He was perfect in beauty. He was full of wisdom, sealest up the sum. He was the most complete. He was the apex of all created beings. Lucifer, 13. Thou hast been in Eden. Now, we know that can't be a reference to the king of Tyre, but it is behind him that he is talking to the power that's making him do what he does, Satan. All right, here he describes Lucifer before the fall. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. Believe it or not, that's a precious gem. And gold... The workmanship of thy timbrels and flutes was prepared in thee in the day thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. He has a real psychedelic glow, you know, with all these different colored precious stones. And then the anointed cherub, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou wast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. Now, in those two passages in the Old Testament, you have really the only glimpse into the pre-fall Lucifer. Satan, because of his beauty, was overwhelmed with it and decided he wanted to be equal with God, and that was the beginning of the end. 
Keep in mind then, Satan was not created evil. He was created as the climax, really, of God's creation prior to the making of man. He was the most perfect thing God had ever made. But he fell. Now, as to his fall, we don't really know when it happened. There are many people who think it happened in terms of chronology between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-2 says, and the earth was without form and void. And how could he create something that was formless, nothingness and emptiness, bohu and tohu in the Hebrew? So some people say that the, between verses 1 and 2, there was a great cataclysm. This is what's called the gap theory. Very common. In fact, there are many, many outstanding Bible scholars of a dispensational rank who believe this. And uh, I would even tend to believe it. Uh, you can't really be dogmatic about it because it's one of those areas where we don't have a lot of revelation. But evidently, this fall did happen, obviously, prior to the world as we know it, and it could have happened between the first creation and that second recreation. So many Bible scholars have, from verse 2 of Genesis 1, a recreation. I think Dr. Unger, Dallas Seminary, has a recreation beginning before verse 1, even. But nevertheless, there is a fall in, in some period of time pre-Adam. Now, the reason that some people believe in the gap theory, and the reason that it has some good evidence, is Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23, I think. This is the best. For it says, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. And beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. In other words, no men, no birds. And behold, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. For thus hath the Lord said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Now, you see, that seems to indicate that at some period of time, God got very angry with the world in its inceptions, before there was man and before there was birds. And it may just be that what Jeremiah is talking about here is the anger of God that brought about the destruction of the pre-Adam civilization, you see? And it may have been that that pre-Adam civilization was a civilization of angels who in some way occupied the earth. That's possible. All right, so nevertheless, that's an aside, really. But there was a fall involving Lucifer. Now, he didn't go alone. When he went, or a whole lot went with him. According to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4, one-third of the stars of heaven fell. He drew them down with his tail, which could mean that a third of all the angelic creatures fell with Lucifer when he went. That's Revelation 12, 4. Now, that means that there is in existence today, Satan and a great host of angels who fell with him. In many places in the New Testament, it speaks of the devil and his angels, doesn't it? Satan and his angels. Repeated places. In Matthew chapter 12, and I want you to get a couple of verses in Matthew, but Matthew 12 indicates that Satan rules the kingdom of these creatures. Matthew 12, 26, and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Now, Satan isn't alone because right there, Jesus says he has a kingdom. And a kingdom is, some, is, a, is a situation where you have a ruler and subject, right? So Satan rules and he rules somebody. He has subjects in his kingdom. Who are they? You have to back to verse 24 and you find out. They're talking about Jesus again, and that's really immaterial to our point here. What we want to see is this. This fellow doth not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Even the Jewish people, unbelievers in Christ, recognized that Satan was ruler over demons. Even they realized that. Even the unbelieving Jews in the book of Acts had exorcists who cast out demons, you see. There's never been any question about the existence of a host of evil spirits. In fact, there are places in the world today where people worship them knowingly and wittingly. They worship evil spirits. The Chinese historically have always believed in evil spirits. That's why they always, whenever you see a Chinese house or a Chinese building, there are little points on the roof. That's to stick the evil spirits in the tail when they slide down. And there's always been that pervading belief in evil spirits the world over. And here we see that Satan rules a 
kingdom of demons. They're called demons right there. Now, in Matthew chapter 25, just another verse, verse 41. This, this is building a foundation for us. We read the statement that Jesus says, Depart from me, you cursed, talking about uh, the judgment of the sheep and goats, you know, the judgment of the nations. Verse 41, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And it, it gives the idea that there are angels who belong to Satan. Now, what are we saying? We're saying this. Evil originated with Satan, and when he fell, so did a great host of angels. And they went with him. They became his kingdom over which he ruled. Now, Scripture is, in a great sense, silent on the origin of demons. The only real indication we have, as I said, is Revelation 12:4, where Satan with his tail draws down a third of the stars of heaven. We really don't know much about the origin of demons, and that's why there's speculation at this point. Some people teach that demons came, as uh, was indicated Sunday night, I think, from a pre-Adam civilization of fleshly creatures who became disembodied spirits. And then there is a distinction between fallen angels and disembodied spirits. Other people think that demons resulted from the union of Genesis chapter 6. When the sons of God met with the daughters of men, they produced these evil demons. There's a lot of speculation as to the origin of demons. However, I think that it's, it's clarified in the simple sense that it says so explicitly, the devil and his, what? Angel. And I don't see why you have to get into all the speculation about a pre-Adam civilization with disembodied whatever and all of these things. Angels are spirits. The Bible says, doesn't it? Hebrews tells us angels are ministering spirits. Good angels. Well, evil angels are still spirits. They can assume a body, but they are still spirits. They use a body whenever they need to use it to express what they want to express, or to accomplish what they want to accomplish. So angels are spirits. Now, I believe that this comprises the entire body of demons, that they are all fallen angels. And I think that any other view is a great deal speculation, because we really have no evidence for any pre-Adam civilization. It's possible, but I don't think it's best to assume that. All right, now I want to show you some things because it's very important that you get this. We have to begin with angels. Now, we have also two kinds of angels. Holy, elect angels. The, the Bible doesn't ever call them good angels. It calls them holy angels and elect angels. And we have up here fallen ones. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Because the fallen ones now get divided into a whole lot of categories. And that's what I want to show you right now. And then we'll see how we deal with them once we see who it is we're dealing with. First of all, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 6 with me. Because we need to understand this very basic point. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 1. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair. And they took them wives, and the, the Hebrew word here is the idea of permanency. They came down and cohabitated of all whom they chose. Now here you have a very interesting phenomenon taking place. Some scholars say that the sons of God are the children of Seth, the Seth, the godly line of Adam. I believe that the sons of God here are angels. And I'll show you why I believe that in a moment. But what we have then here are angels who came down to cohabitate with women. Now you see, this is again one of Satan's devices. If God has set in motion in the world a redemptive plan through the God-man Christ, then to produce a race of half-angels, half-men, fouls up the God-man redemption. Do you see? You understand what I'm saying? It introduces into existence a third element of creature. And it, it messes up the redemptive plan in view of men. And this, I believe, was the great reason that God brought the flood to wipe out the offspring of this union so that they could not be continued, spared but one family, Noah. That'll show you the extent to which this thing went. Now, I don't know how broad it was. 
but it was broad enough for God to bring about a universal flood and cover the entire globe. Angels came, cohabitated with women, produced offspring that God had to inundate the entire globe to get rid of. Now, I say there are many people who believe that these, this is the line of Seth and they're just human beings. Let me show you why I believe not. In the first place, angels can have bodies. They can. Remember Genesis chapter 19? No, you don't remember Genesis chapter 19. But anyway, in Genesis chapter 19, you remember the chapter but not what's in it. Sodom. Remember the angels that came to Sodom? Now, the men in Sodom had a problem. They were homosexuals. They were deviants. And when they saw these angels, beautiful creatures, had bodies, they came to Lot's house and they started to knock the walls in. Send those guys out. See? And in Genesis chapter 19, in dealing with them, it's interesting that they can visually see these angels. They have literal bodies. And, of course, you know, they're just really beautiful bodies. And so these perverted, sick people want them. So the angels took care of them. Verse 11, they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Smote them blind. But here you have an illustration of angels taking on a body. And there are other illustrations of it all throughout the Old Testament. So it's no problem for an angel to take on a body. None at all. Does not the book of Hebrews say, be very careful for some of you may have entertained angels, what? Unawares. The only way you could ever entertain an angel unaware was to entertain one that looked like a human being. If an angel looked, if you saw something fly into your house with four wings, you know, and flowing gold hair, you'd say, oh, I see, you're an angel. You wouldn't have any question about it. But when your mother-in-law comes over, you just don't assume that, do you? Okay, so, so there is a sense in which angels become visible when they take a body. Now, let me show you why I believe that these are angels in Genesis 6. And in order to do that, you must turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're reviewing for some of you, I know, because you've studied this, and that's great. 2 Peter 2, but you learn line upon line and precept upon precept. 2 Peter 2, 4 says this, For if God spared not the angels that sinned. Oh, uh-huh, now we know some angels sinned, right? That's what we said right here, isn't it? There are some fallen angels, aren't there? That's why I believe there's no reference in any place in the whole Bible to any disembodied spirits of sin. Always angels. Some angels sinned, and he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. Now we have an interesting situation. We have some angels who are chained. Very definitely. It's exactly what this says. Now, we don't have to worry about these angels, do we? They are chained. You say, well, maybe they're not chained very well. No. It says they're delivered into chains to be reserved unto judgment. And you say, what angels is he talking about? Very simple. Look at the context. What's the next verse? And spared not the old world, but saved Noah. Oh, what angels? The angels somewhere connected with Noah, right? I mean, the Bible isn't just a hodgepodge of disconnected verses. There's context here. Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, I believe that this is a direct reference back to the time of Noah, and that the angels which are bound are the angels who cohabitated with women in Genesis 6. They are the bound angels. Now, let me substantiate it with another verse, a little book of Jude next to Revelation, verse 6. It says, And the angels who kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Now, isn't that, isn't that exactly what happened in Genesis 6? Spiritual beings who belonged in a habitation and an estate that was spiritual entered into a habitation and an estate that did not belong to them. Do you see? I don't think that verse is talking about the original fall. Even though angels fell with Lucifer, they maintained their same habitation. That is, they were still spirit beings living in a spirit world. But in Genesis 6, they left their habitation and they came into the human stream. Do you see? So what happened to them? He hath reserved in everlasting chains. Oh, so now we learn something else. They are bound permanently. That's the next thing we learn about them. They are not only bound, but they are bound forever. 
until the great day of judgment. Now, I believe that this kind of helps us to understand Genesis chapter 6. Now, one interesting side on this, when Christ died on the cross, according to 1 Peter 3, we'll look at it for a minute, would you? This is so important, we need to get all this. 1 Peter chapter 3, when our Lord died, something very interesting happened. His body was on the cross and in the grave for how long? Three days. All right, was his spirit dead? No, his spirit doesn't die. The question is, where was it? The answer is in 1 Peter 3, 18. And following, for Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now watch this, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Small s, not large s. His flesh was dead, his spirit was alive. What did his spirit do? Verse 19, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison. Now who are the spirits in prison? They are the permanently chained fallen angels. You say, well, how do you know that? Just look at the next verse. Who at one time were disobedient. When? When once the long-suffering of God waited. When? In the days of Noah. You see, there it is again. In the days of Noah. He descended into the spirit prison at the time of his death. His spirit descended into the spirit prison, and he proclaimed his victory. The word preached is not euangelizo, to preach the gospel. It is caruso, to make a proclamation. He announced his triumph, didn't he? Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says he made an open show, triumphing over principalities and powers. And this is what he did here. Look down at verse 22. After he did this, then he went into heaven, is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made, what? Subject to him. So when Jesus died on the cross, his spirit descended and he announced this great, final, eternal victory over fallen angels. Say, well, that's all very wonderful. That's kind of a demon dungeon, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is a demon dungeon. But let me quickly add, there are other demons bound. Incidentally, let me add this thought to the name of this place. According to scripture, Peter's Greek word that he uses is Tartarus. Not tartar sauce. Tartarus. And Tartarus is a special place. Now mark that. It's a special place for the bound angels who sinned at the time of Noah. But that's not all of these angels. Because all of them didn't sin in that time. Some didn't get into that thing. Now let me show you. Even though they didn't get in. Uh, they are also bound. Only they are bound temporarily. Now, let me show you what I mean. Turn to Luke 8. Luke chapter 8, verse 31. Now, this is the interesting situation here. Over in Gerasa, Jesus met a man who was, you know, possessed of devils, demons. I mean, he was really wiped out, no question about it. He went around naked, stark naked, and lived in tombs, which is, you know, a little out of the ordinary, to say the least. When Jesus contacted the demons. In verse 30, he talks and asks their name. But in verse 31, the demons besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. Now, the Greek word for deep, very interesting word. It transliterates like this, abyssos, and it's sometimes called the abyss. This is a temporary housing place for demons. It is never associated with an eternal thing or with a permanent thing, as is Tartarus. But it seems to be temporary. So we'll just put under here the abyss. You say, well, in what sense is it temporary? Well, it's kind of a demon dungeon. For example, in uh, Revelation 20, you know how it says Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years? Where is he going to be put for a thousand years? In the pit, same place, Abyssos. Is he going to be loosed at the end of the thousand years? Yes, he is. The Abyssos is a temporary place. You say, you mean when Jesus would send, and it was usually his custom, evidently, to send demons into the abyss. You mean when he did that, he knew that sooner or later they'd be coming out again? Not sooner, later. Not only that, he knew exactly when they'd be coming out. That's all laid out for us in the book of Revelation, and I want to show it to you in chapter 9. And here we'll read about the releasing of the temporary bound demons, and incidentally, you'll be happy to know that it takes place during the tribulation, and you and I will be long gone. Revelation chapter 9. If you know Christ, you'll be long gone. 
going to add that. All right, now, in verse 1 of chapter 9, and it's in the middle of the trumpets, you know, the great sequence of judgments. And the fifth angel sounded, Revelation 9, 1, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, I believe this is Satan himself, the fallen star, often used to speak of angels. And watch what he does. Again, we're at the Abyssos, not Tartarus, but the Abyssos, the ones who cohabitated with men. God has just finally chained them forever. But these, he opens the bottomless pit, the Abyssos, same reference, and arose a smoke out of the pit, etc., etc. The smoke of the great furnace, the sun, the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth. This is symbolic. Here come the demons. They're loosed. And under them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. It was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree. He pictures it like a locust plague. But only those men who have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And here come the demons. Here come the demons to torment the unbelieving world. And to them it was given that they should not kill, but far worse, that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in this day shall men seek death and shall not find it and shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. Now, who are these guys that are coming up out of the pit? Verse 11. They had a king over them who is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. You know what that means? Destroyer. And who is their king? Satan. Who are they then? They're demons. They are the temporarily bound demons in the abyss released in the tribulation to torment the ungodly. Did you know that God has absolute and total control over the activities of demons? That's a comforting thought because you are at no time in your Christian life unwillingly ever at the mercy of demons. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, that takes care of a whole gob of demons. However, we must add one other category. There are some that are still running around loose. It is with these demons that we wrestle, right? Ephesians 6, verse 12. Now, this is only a portion of those that fell with Satan. And if it is true that it is a third of the angels, we have no idea how many that is. You know, that's plenty. Be sure of that. But it is only a portion of them. They are outnumbered and outmanned by the holy angels, at least two to one, by the power of God, certainly. All right. Secondly, now, we've seen pretty much the identity of demons. All right, let me give you something of the nature of demons. The nature of demons, first of all, they are spiritual. They are spiritual beings. Now, I could show you all kinds of scriptures on this, just a couple of scriptures to indicate that, but the Bible talks repeatedly about the fact they are spirit beings. Uh, one of them that I might look at is in, let's see, I think it's Luke 10. Yes, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject unto us through thy name. See, there's, there's a wonderful promise. The demons are subject to us in the name of Christ. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Again, referring to Lucifer's fall. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Did you get that? There is no time in the life of a Christian when he is unwillingly oppressed and injured by demons. I think so many people had a kind of an undue fear that everywhere you go and every time you turn around, there's demons on your back. I think the cases of demon uh, problems in the, in the lives of believers are there because they willingly open themselves to that. There is no nothing in the Bible that indicates that without being willing without subjecting yourself willingly to that kind of influence, that that can take power over you. He says simply right here, notwithstanding, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That very fact alone secures for you a deliverance, as well as the fact that he gives you power over the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, this is, of course, a direct statement to the 70 that was sent forth to proclaim the gospel, but I think is also applicable to us who are in Christ and possess everything that they possessed even more in possessing the indwelling spirit. But notice that he says this, verse 20. He calls the demons in verse 20 spirits. He just called them demons. Demons are spirits. That's the point I want to make. Daimon in the Greek is an old word, pre-New Testament word. It meant God in Homer's time. Um, in the New Testament, it means an evil spirit. It went through a little etymology. 
simply means, as you know it to mean, a demon or an evil spirit. All right, secondly, they're not only spiritual, that is, they must assume a body from some other source if they want one, but they are intelligent. They are plenty intelligent. They are not floating, impersonal blobs. They are intelligent beings. And I'll show you that. Luke chapter 4, verse 33, says this. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon and cried out with a loud voice. This is beautiful. Because whenever Jesus came into a place, the demons, you know, just went bananas. To, you know, to coin a word. Not to coin a word, but to use a word. But anyway, this is what happened. And the demon cries out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. They knew that he would deal with them. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? They are intelligent. They know that Jesus is going to act upon them. Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. You see, the demons were speaking through this individual with a loud voice. Demons were yelling with a loud voice. And they were saying, they were really giving what they know. They knew Jesus of Nazareth. They knew he was the Holy One of God. And they knew that ultimately they were going to be destroyed. And he, they're saying, are you now come to destroy us? See, they know. They have personality. They have knowledge. Let me show you another illustration that pulls together two of their things. Acts 19. In Acts 19, verse 11, says this. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Now listen to this. Very important. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. And there you have a case where evil spirits and disease go together. Very frequent. Now, this looks real good to some of the unbelieving Jewish exorcists who, you know, fool around with demons. So certain of the vagabond Jews exorcists, demon caster outers or whatever you want to call them, took upon them to call over them who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. Here these guys are casting out demons in the name of Jesus whom they don't even know. They've picked up on Paul's formula, see? And this is beautiful. And there was there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests who did so. And listen to what the evil spirit says. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? See? What are you guys doing? Must have been a chef. If they'd have known who they were, they would have been more shocked. You're on our side. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them. How many were there? Ooh, that's seven guys he overcame. And prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, you can strip down and wound seven guys. That's supernatural strength. And that's the next characteristic of a demon. They have supernatural strength. They can cause the physical body to exert a power and a strength that it normally doesn't have. Well, you know that Luke 8, the same maniac there. Jesus met at Gerasa. In verse 29, it says that they, they caught him and kept bound him with chains and fetters. And he broke the bonds. Can you imagine that? Breaking chains? This is what he did. In Mark, 20, Mark 1, 24, listen to this. Here's a guy in the synagogue. He's got an unclean spirit, and he cries out too here. And he says, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? And this is, of course, a parallel of Luke 4. Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. And he says down here a little further, the people were all questioning themselves, what authority does he use to command the unclean spirits? And they obey him. And so they have knowledge and they have strength. They know who Jesus is. They even bow before Jesus. Did you know that? In Mark chapter 5, they bow before Jesus. In Mark chapter 5, they say he's the son of the Most High. In Luke chapter 8, they recognize they can have no fellowship with him. They say, we, what have we to do with you? See, they, they know there's no relationship. They obey him, Matthew chapter 8. They absolutely are subject to him. They obey him. They don't obey him joyfully. They obey him because they're subject to him. They also withhold the truth of his word and his work. 
Demons are very busy perverting the truth of the gospel. And you must realize, folks, that demon possession or oppression, or whatever you want to call it, does not only result in gross, heinous, weird, wicked, vile things. Demons spend probably more time working through spiritual apostates, false teachers, liberals who stand in the pulpit and proclaim to be teaching the Bible or talking about God or religionists. And without foaming at the mouth and falling on the floor and doing weird things, they are as possessed by devils as any other kind of manifestation could ever be. And I don't want you to get the idea that only happens to people who are weird and run into walls and wind up in padded cells. This is some of the most composed, scholarly, civil-looking individuals who may be totally controlled and captivated by a myriad of demons because they are concerned, as it says in 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Demons infest false prophets, according to this. But this know ye, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. That's how you can tell if they'll confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. All right, so this is one of the things demons want to do, is pervert the truth. They also, in 1 Timothy 4, 1, it says that they have their own doctrines, the doctrines of demons. You've read that, haven't you? You want to know what some of the doctrines of demons are? Free love is one of them. That's the doctrine of the demons. It says forbidding to marry. That's the doctrine of demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. You see, that's it. There they are again. There they are again in a, in a position of supposedly being teachers. Only they're hypocrites. So they know a lot. They're intelligent. They know their own doom, too. They're really assured of that. In uh, Matthew 8.29, it says this, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come here to torment us before the time? The demon said to Jesus, Have you come to torment us before the time? They know their time is coming. They know that. They know they're doomed. They know they're judged. Now, with all this knowledge, the Bible says in James 2.19, the devils know it all, they believe it all, and they what? And they tremble. It's not saving knowledge. It's the knowledge of fear and subjection. They worship Christ in hate. They chafe under his rule, but they cannot get out of it. Unclean spirits, Mark 3.11, fell down before Christ and cried, Thou art the Son of God. They have to acknowledge that. All right. So they are spiritual, they are intelligent, strong, and thirdly, they are immoral. We threw strength in there as kind of a footnote. They are immoral. They are called unclean. And they must be to make a person go around and totally nude and live in tombs. And, you know, they're totally unclean. And the most unclean kind of unclean is unclean doctrine, isn't it? All right. Then let me add that they are powerful. These loose demons that we're talking about in our little outline here are very powerful beings. They can cause dumbness. That is, they can cause a person not to be able to talk. According to, to Matthew chapter 9, they did that. They can cause blindness, Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. They can cause insanity, Luke 8. They can cause suicidal mania. Remember in Mark 9, the person who kept throwing himself in the fire because he had a demon? Suicidal mania. You wonder why so many people commit suicide? I believe a great, great deal of it has to do with demons. They can cause personal injuries. Mark 9. They can cause physical defects and deformities. Luke chapter 13. And that's interesting, so that perhaps we should look at it. Luke 13, 11. Says this. Behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years. Now here was an 18-year demon. This had been in her, making her infirm for 18 years. And what kind of thing was it? She was bowed together and could in no way lift herself up. She was stooped like this, and it wasn't a back problem, it was a demon problem. Demons actually were powerful enough to cause a physical deformity. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hand on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now she knew who to praise. She had been oppressed and troubled. 
and besieged by this demon for 18 years. You say, was she a believer in God? Very likely, it doesn't say anything here about Jesus leading her to himself. She glorified God. She perhaps was a faithful child of Abraham. Nevertheless, had put herself in some position whereas, where she was besieged and buffeted even with this infirmity, as Paul himself said he was. He said, a messenger from Satan buffets me constantly. Christians are not beyond the tremendous power of demons. And I'll tell you, I'll get more specific with that in a moment. Let me also add that demons have varying degrees of wickedness. Some are more wicked than others, just like people. Remember in um, Matthew 12, where it talks about the man who had a demon, and the demon was cast out, and he was swept clean, and it warned him to be sure that he didn't go and get seven others worse than himself and come back? Demons have degrees of wickedness. All right, now, coming down to the practical things, and all this is practical from the standpoint of knowledge, spiritual knowledge. But let me talk about the activity of demons for a moment, and we'll bring it down to well, how it relates to Christian living. First of all, demons oppose God. We don't need to say much about that. They oppose God. There is a, there is a conflict going on between the holy angels and the demons, incessantly. We, who belong to God, constantly wrestle in a hand-to-hand mortal combat, right, with demons. I mean, they're that close, friends. We're not, we're not you know, 500 yards away with a magnum rifle. This is a hand-to-hand wrestling match with demons. And the people who think that demons can't hassle Christians are wrong. They can. That's what Paul's talking about when he says we wrestle. He could have used any figure he wanted to use. He used that one because in that kind of engagement, you are closer than in any other kind of engagement that you could dream of in a physical way. Hand-to-hand wrestling. That's as close as you ever get to your opponent. And that's how close we are to this demon world in the struggle. All right, secondly, they not only oppose God, but they oppress men, and they desire to ruin them. Ephesians 2.2 says that the spirit that worketh, Satan is the spirit that works in the children of disobedience, right? Satan works in unbelievers. I don't think Satan works in that same sense in a believer, Satan himself, but he does work in the children of disobedience. So they seek to oppress and to ruin men. Now, I believe in terms of unregenerate men, and here's an important statement for you to get, I believe demons literally control, now watch this word, and possess unbelievers. Now, when I say possess, I mean this. They own them. That's what I mean. To possess something means to have it totally for yourself, doesn't it? I believe that demons totally own unbelievers. That's what demon possession is in my mind. That's the meaning of the word, to be possessed of a demon. doesn't mean that you have a demon. It means a demon, what? Has you. That's the difference. I believe, now watch this one, I believe a Christian can have a demon. But I don't believe a demon can have a Christian. I believe that a Christian can be buffeted and abused and shoved around and maligned and influenced and subjected to tremendous power and pressure from a demon, but at no time ever does a demon own or possess a Christian. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I cannot minimize the fact that demons can still work in Christians' lives when they subject themselves, and I'll get to how you do that, better how you avoid it. Mark chapter 1, verse 23. We're going back to the same illustrations. I want to hit it for a minute. Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit and uh, sends the demon out. Now, in this particular case, as in many other cases, demon possession is connected with disease. And it's connected with problems. But, But the idea that everything that happens to you is a demon, I just reject that. I don't think that every time you get mad at something or every time you have a problem or every time you get a stomachache, it's a demon. I don't believe that. I don't think there's any warrant for that in Scripture. I still am convinced of what the Bible says so clearly and explicitly in Mark and what it also says in Galatians, that it is that flesh that is in you that produces these things, and then it lists them all in a catalog. Not always demons. 
I can't. To become overly preoccupied with demons is wrong. And to say, just as wrong as it is to say every time something happens, the devil made me do it. See, that's the same thing. It's exactly the same kind of morbid fancy. It isn't always the devil making you do it. He's got other things to do than to mess with you. He just lets your flesh run loose and it takes care of enough things. And it isn't always demons. Every time you get, every time you go through a stoplight, it isn't the demon that made you do it. All right, we want to understand that. Now, to show you an illustration of this, in one cat situation here, Jesus cast out a demon. Right, the next thing that happens in verse 29, forthwith they were come out of the synagogue, entered into the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John. Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and straightway they tell him over, and he came and took her by the hand, immediately lifted her up. Immediately the fever left, she ministered unto them. Notice, no demons. No demons. Some people have gone so far as to say, every time you're sick, every time you're this, every time you're that, it's demons, 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 demons. No, no. If he was going to use this to show demons, he would have done it because he's talking about demons in the previous context, you see? So here you don't even see anything about demons. It's a clear break. Every time someone gets sick, every time something happens, it is not demons. All right, so they oppress men and they seek to ruin men, but everything that happens in everybody's life isn't a demon. No sense in overdoing it. All right, now I want to add a point that's going to really be exciting for you, I think. That's this. God uses demons to accomplish his own purposes. They're so subject to him that they don't even know what they're doing some of the time, and they're moving in his purposes. You know who it is that gathers all the armies of the world to Armageddon? It's the demons. And you know what happens when they all arrive. They're destroyed by Jesus Christ. Let me show you some verses. Psalm 78, 49. Listen to this. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger. Talking about Israel here. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. Now, did you get that? God actually distributed evil, evil angels among his own people. Now, get that. God distributed evil angels among his own people. You say, do you mean to tell me that God would actually let me fall under the control or the power of a demon? I mean to tell you that he's done it before. He's done it before. Now you say, well, maybe these are unbelievers, all right? They were for the most part, just like Ahab. In 1 Kings 22, 23, the Bible says God gave Ahab a lying spirit. God gave him that evil spirit. You say, well, you couldn't use those to support the fact that God would ever give a demon to a believer or he would ever let a demon take a believer. No, I wouldn't necessarily use those. However, I would add to those. They are possibly good to prove that point. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, and this is beyond question. The fact that God will even use demons and the devil himself to accomplish his purposes in a Christian's life. You say, you mean God would actually let Satan take control of me to accomplish God's purposes? That's exactly right. 1 Corinthians 5 tells us. Now, here you have a case of an individual who's having sexual relationships with his mother in the Corinthian church. And here's what God tells him to do through the, the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 5, when you gather together in my spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Did you hear that? God is literally saying, you take that believer who is living in that kind of prolonged sin and you turn him over to Satan. Deliver him to Satan. Now, how do you deliver somebody to Satan? You say, well, listen, you've been acting like this, so we're going to just ask you not to come for two months. What does it mean? Does it mean that you say, we are turning you over to the power of Satan? That's what it says, doesn't it? Say, why would God want to turn a believer over to the power of Satan? Look at the rest of the verse. That this destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Why? In order that that person may go to the bottom of sinfulness, that their flesh may be destroyed, that they might turn and see what they're doing and turn in repentance to God. The last resort, you know? In case you think that's an isolated illustration, I show you 1 Timothy 1 and verse 20. Here's a couple of Christians, as far as we can tell. This is a remedial situation. 
See? And he's talking about these who have really messed up their Christian lives. And he says, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. It's as if God says, you like to live like that? Then go, man, go. Whole hog. See? It's as if God lets them go so that they may be totally in the flesh, destroyed by Satan, that their spirit may be redeemed. They may learn not to blaspheme. Now, I can tell you just this. A couple of nights ago, I received a phone call from an individual who is a Christian, but who has been living in sin too long, several years, and in gross, blatant, flagrant, defiant, rebellious sin. Called and said, I feel terrible pressures. I am sick. My head is crushing. I feel there are things all around me. What is it? I haven't slept for nights. I'm up all night in terror and anguish and on and on and on. And I simply explained this. If, number one, the fellowship of believers does not stimulate you to godliness, if, number two, the study of the Word of God and prayer does not accomplish the stimulation to godliness, then it just may be that Satan himself may be released or his demons under the control of God to buffet you and to bruise you and to influence you and to pressure you, and that may, in effect, do for you what all these other things did not do. I believe that as a last resort in the life of a believer, God will let that believer fall under the control of the evil world if it means ultimately his glorification. How else can we interpret this? And I saw it illustrated as perfectly as I've ever seen it. And this person said to me, from now on in all my life, we prayed, I read scripture, it was great. From now on, for the rest of my life, all I ever want to do is be filled with the Holy Spirit. All I ever want to do is live for Jesus Christ. I don't ever want to do anything against His will again. All I want to do is give my whole life to Him. And I said, praise God, that's the purpose of everything that's been happening to you through all of this anguish. I said, God has brought about the chastening in its most serious thing. And even then, you see, there are some people who never repent. And you know what God does with them? 1 John 5, 16. There is a sin unto death, and I say you should not pray for that one. There are some Christians who go so far down the tubes that even being buffeted by Satan, even turned over to Satan himself, they still don't learn not to blaspheme. And so you know what God does with them? Just takes them to heaven. My friends, it behooves us as Christians to be stimulated by the fellowship of the believers, the study of the word of God and prayer, doesn't it? And I do believe that there are times when God in his design may bring to bear upon the individual evil spirits to accomplish purpose. And I've seen it happen in many lives. And just graphically, as I said in the last couple of days, and it was so obviously a situation just like this, because the sin was so blatant and so anti-God and so open. And now the whole picture is clear. And talked about confession, just laying the whole thing before God, which was done, and the peace that came and the change and all these things. All right, the work of demons. Now I want to make some distinctions. Demons can possess an individual, right? Now you heard Reverend Johnson say that a Christian cannot be possessed, but he didn't really define possessed. So let me, let me define it for you. It means that a demon owns a person. That's how I define possessed. Demon can't own you. No possible way a demon can ever own you. 1 Corinthians 3.23 Listen to this. And ye are Christ's. Did you hear that? And Christ is whose? Is God's. And the Bible says your life is hid, Colossians 3, with Christ, where? In God. Whose are you? You're God's. You're Christ's. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of whom? The Holy Spirit. You are not your own, let alone some demons. You're not even your own. You're his because what did he do? He bought you with what? 
with a price. You are his. Don't ever think that a believer can be owned by a demon. Can't be. If that has been a fear, forget it. You can't be owned by a demon. You belong to Jesus Christ. You're hid with Christ in God. Just listen to Romans 14, 8. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore die, we are what? The Lord's. See? You can't be owned by a demon. But let me say this. Unbelievers can be. Unbelievers can be. We read in the New Testament many times of those possessed by devils. Possessed by demons. Even children. Did you know that? And how this phenomenon happens, the Bible doesn't say, but it occurred at least once. Mark 9.21 talks to this father, and he asked the father how long since this came from him. This is the spirit that gave him convulsions, and he said from a child, and it's the one that threw him into the fire, the suicidal mania demon. The, the, the man had it since he was a little boy. Now, they can possess unbelievers. They can cause deafness, dumbness, blindness. They can cause disease. They can cause a lot of things. You know, it's interesting that uh, so much of illness is psychosomatic, isn't it? Tremendous amount of illness is psychological. Where do you think that comes from? I think a great deal of it is demonic. They can't really find symptoms, and yet there is terrible pain in the stomach, terrible pains in the head, terrible this and terrible that, an inability to see, and they have no way to explain it, an inability to hear, and they can't figure out why. Why? I believe that they are subjected to the possession of a demon. In many cases, not in every case, not everybody who's dumb, deaf, and so forth is demonized. I want you to get that, but they can't operate in that way. All right, now let me make a distinction at this point and talk about influence. I do not believe a Christian can be possessed by a demon. You are Christ. Did you get that? And greater is he that is in you than what? Than he that is in the world. You have nothing to be afraid of. You don't have anything to fear. I mean, you know, Paul says rejoice always in what? And again I say rejoice. I say don't sweat the demon. Right? You worry about the positive graces and the joy of the Christian life. And you won't even know what they're doing. And you don't need to know anyway. One guy came to me after the service and said, I don't understand. He said, I've been a Christian for such and such a time. I never had any of those demons. You know, I said, well, great. You know, I don't doubt that. I never have had any either that I know. And I'm sure I would have known if I'd had some. I don't think I've ever had any demons. And I don't ever want any. All right. I believe that there can be a great influence and a great power, and a great control exercised on some Christians by demons. That's what I believe is taught us in 1 Corinthians 5.5 and 1 Timothy 1.20, you know, where we're turned over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. I think this is tremendous power and control by demons. As I say, a Christian can find a physical sickness, a Christian can fall into mental illness, a Christian can be under demon influence, and even death. Did you get that? Even death, according to 1 John 5.16. And God lets evil spirits perhaps work in the life of a believer to teach him not to blaspheme. Now, in all of this, and somebody says, well, if you're unsaved, the demon's in you. If you're saved, the demon's outside you. Well, that's really splitting hairs, right? A demon is a spirit anyway. And spirits aren't like one inch out of your head or one inch in. or I mean, they're there, right? Or they're not there. They, there may be demons around you having absolutely no control, no way to get in. There may be demons who have instant control and access because you have made yourself available to it, and I'll show you how that happens in a minute. But friends, I don't want you to have any morbid fear about demons. There's no need for this. We have nothing to fear. I mean, we are more than what? Conquerors. And what victory have we ever lost? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall principalities? Shall powers? Of course not. There's no reason for fear, morbid fear, but I'll tell you something. I believe that there is in the lives of Christians control of demons, exercise, and here's the point, upon those people who open themselves willfully to that control. Like the girl I mentioned to you, who blatantly, willfully continued in sin on a prolonged basis. She was in effect saying, come on, I'll take all I can get. 
I believe, prolonged sin, according to 1 Corinthians 5, continual fornication is the picture there. Relationships on a continuing basis with his mother and that kind of life blatantly opposed to God opened the door for demon influence. And God let him come. Christ said, let him come that he might learn to be, not to blaspheme, that he might not pollute the whole fellowship, throw him out. I believe, first of all then, that they can come into one who lives in a state of continual sin and they can exercise great control. But it'll never happen unless you're willing for it to happen. Because you can tell a demon to go anytime you want. I believe that. You say, how do you cast out demons? You simply say, demon, I don't want you in the name of Jesus Christ. Go. I believe the whole problem with casting out demons is the will of the individual. Some people enjoy their demons, evidently. It's the will of the individual. The second thing that opens the door to demonology is fooling around with the supernatural in an area other than what the Bible permits. And there's so many ways. Ouija boards. If you got a Ouija board, burn it. Any kind of hypnosis that allows you to be put into a vacuum where anything can influence your mind is just asking for trouble. Seances, the occult, astrology. Don't read that garbage in your horoscope. Don't ever read it. Don't look at the stuff. Don't buy all of Satan's baloney about the age of Aquarius and all the garbage about what sign you're under. You know what that is? You're not like that. You become like that. Did you know that? That's the greatest illustration I've ever seen of the power of suggestion. People conform themselves to those principles. That stuff's a bunch of baloney. They can say all kinds of things. Today you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger, and you'll run up and down the street till you find one, you know? I did it, I did it. There's no, that stuff is of Satan because that is exercising on you an outside control designed to change your personality. Watch out for all kinds of psychological therapy. Even you people that may have problems in your marriage or whatever and you go to some unsaved Christian counselor, you don't know who it is that's, that's speaking to you through that person. I mean, he needs help more than you do. And I believe it. We, anybody that fools around with magic, white magic or black magic or any other stuff, and I don't mean, uh, you know, Captain Goody Goods magic kit. But I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the kind of magic that deals with witchcraft. Have nothing to do with it. If you, have, if you ever get in a situation where somebody's going to have a séance or fool around with anything like that, you just get on your feet and run. Get out of there. Another thing that I think is a very, very dangerous thing is the area of tongues. And I say that knowingly that all tongues are not demonic. Please understand that. A great deal of it must be. The, one of the principles that they teach is that you create a vacuum in your mind and think of nothing and let an outside control take over. Well, friends, that is dynamite. That is dynamite. And some people want that thing so badly that they'll take anything they can get and boy, they get them. They get them. Believe me. Believe me. They get them. And the whole, the whole can of worms opens up many times when you desire a supernatural experience that is not of God. When the Bible says that tongues was given to those that the Spirit intended to give it to, that's exactly what the Bible meant. It's not something that everybody's supposed to run around and tear you to get. All you do is expose yourself to influences that are beyond your control, that are supernatural. And when you create a vacuum in your mind, and, and as they tell you, say, blah, 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 and hit your mouth and do these things, you are creating a, an opening for demon control. It is only when a Christian willfully and flagrantly and blatantly prolongs a sinful situation that he opens himself to that control. Secondly, when he creates a vacuum in his mind, willfully rejecting that constant admonition to think on what? These things, pure, lovely, just, good, holy, set your affections on things above, etc. When we stop thinking about Jesus Christ and create a vacuum and ask for anything we can get, friends, we're opening the door. We just don't want to do that. That's why the Bible says be preoccupied with Christ. So, a Christian then has nothing to fear in the sense of, without him knowing it, demons are going to get all over it. If you're Filled with the Spirit, 
in the Word, loving Christian fellowship, you don't have a fear at all regarding demons. Well, you remember what happened to Saul? You know why Saul got messed up with demons? Because he willfully disobeyed God. God said, don't mess with it. Saul said, I'm going to mess with it, and he got it. Deuteronomy tells us, chapter 18, and I'll just read this to you, just to show you how to avoid the situation. I'll give you some closing principles. Uh, three things to avoid demon control. Number one, salvation, right? Let's get saved. 1 John 5.14, my little children, you have overcome the wicked one, right? That's the beginning, isn't it? Number two, stay away from their influences. Stay away from their influences. What do you mean by that? Well, Deuteronomy 18.9. Well, 10. There shall not be found among you anyone that makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. And you remember that was a Moloch worship. Or who uses divination. Divination is any kind of an activity to bring up the underworld spirits. Or an observer of times. What do you think that is? Uh, What sign are you under? Or an enchanter, a witch, a charmer, a consoler of mediums, a wizard, a necromancer. And that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means. It means somebody who seeks to bring up the spirits of dead people. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. Because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out before thee. So you stay away from all that garbage. All that enchantment and witchcraft, magic, every bit of it. And don't watch it on your TV. It's monopolizing television. So you get saved, first of all, and you conquer the wicked one in a positional sense. Secondly, you stay away from all this influence. Thirdly, very simply, put on the armor of God, right? We studied it last week, didn't we? Get that girdle of truth on. If you're solid on the truth, you're in good shape. Get on uh, the feet shot of the preparation of the gospel of peace. The feet shot of the preparation of the gospel of peace means you understand your position, right? Positional truth, you've got a grip on it. You know where you stand. And then we're going to talk about the continuing area. Breastplate of righteousness, too. A godly, pure life. You don't have anything to fear from demons when you're really wearing the armor and when you grow spiritually. In 1 John 2.15, John said this. I write unto you, young men, listen to this one, this is good. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Now you say, what does he mean by young men? There are spiritual babes, spiritual young men, and spiritual fathers. Those are the steps of spiritual growth. If you're as far up as a young man spiritually, you've already overcome the evil one. You know who gets hassled with the demons? Not the spiritual young men and the spiritual fathers, but who? Spiritual babes. Grow up. Grow up in Christ. Put on the arm. Stay away from the influences. And don't worry, no demon has any access to you that you don't openly and willfully give him.